0: The National Archives Podcast Series, Finding Your Family in Canada, presented by Michael Leclerc. As Audrey mentioned, I am an American I thought it was a little odd. So you're asking an American to come to England to talk about Canada. Okay. But I do have uh, my own family goes goes back to Canada straight away. My two of my grandparents were born in Canada, and my other two grandparents, their parents were born in Canada. So my American roots don't run very deep. But I, I would encourage you, at any point, if you have a question, please feel free to ask because there's a couple places where I don't want to lose you and get your head all muddled and then we come back and you have no idea where anything is anymore. And I have to re- my job is to remember to repeat the question for the people who are listening to the podcast later who can't see this and can't see you raise your hand or hear you. So, the first thing we're going to do to get started is to compare the UK with Canada The UK is about 94,000 square miles. Canada is 10 million square miles. Canada is, I believe, is the second largest country in the world after Russia. Certainly has the largest coastline. So you'll quickly discover that it's, it's a little bit trickier than researching. How many of you have researched before in Canada? Oh, excellent. I'll try my best not to bore you and to give you something you haven't learned before. The first thing I'd like to do is review a little bit of the history of Canada. And the reason I like to do this is... I mean, how many of you ever learned about the the history of Canada when you were in school? Probably a a few, but not a lot. The one who grew up in Canada said, Yeah, me! It's important to understand the history and some significant dates because they actually impact the records and the record-keeping and where you're going to find information. Canada actually starts in 1605 with the first settlement by Samuel de Champlain, which was at the area that is now Quebec City. I actually had ancestors in that very first settlement. Canada had been around before that time for a while, but this was the first permanent settlement. Before that, they were temporary people. They were there fishing and exploring, and nobody stuck around very long. And there are two very distinct, by the way, two very distinct settlements in Canada. Even though Canada was settled by the French, there are French Canadians and there are Acadians, and they are not the same people. The people who are French, who are in what is today Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, PEI, the maritime provinces, They are called Acadians. That was Acadia, that was the first territory that was transferred to British control. The French Canadians settled in what is now Quebec and the Midwest of what is the United States and down and out to the Pacific coast. In 1670, the Hudson's Bay Company formed and they kind of jumped around and went over the top and end up down in Hudson's Bay and Rupert's Land and that area. In 1710, the British captured Acadia I don't hold a grudge. My grandfather did, but I don't. And in 1755, we have the expulsion, Le Grand Arrangement. This is where the French, when they were first conquered in 1710, were never asked to swear loyalty to the English crown. 45 years later, the English crown said, we need you to swear allegiance. And when they didn't, or they wouldn't, they refused to swear allegiance to the king, they were kicked out. They were sent back to France, they were sent into Quebec to Massachusetts and then there's a whole bunch in Louisiana that end up being the Cajuns we call them today. But the reason for this is in the 1750s this is where we're starting to see the people in the, in the uh, southern British North America. Massachusetts and New York and, and Point South, there's starting to be some conflict with England and so England's starting to say, okay, we need to kind of rein in these French and make sure we have control of them. Three years after the expulsion starts, the remaining territory in Acadia, all of Acadia fell to the English. And so this is the end of British control in I mean uh, French control in that area of Canada. Quebec is still French. in 1759 the following year we had the Battle of the Plains of Abraham, and that's when France loses all control of any territory in, in uh, what is today Canada. They kept what is today the Midwest of, of the United States and those points west but the area that's now Quebec and Ontario that stuff was ceded over to England. That was formalized four years later with the Treaty of Paris. And in 1774 the Quebec Act passed in Parliament and we will talk about that again in a minute uh, because that's very significant in terms of how record keeping is set up in Canada. That one act made a huge impact. In 1791, they created two colonies, Upper Canada and Lower Canada. Upper Canada is today Ontario, Lower Canada is today Quebec. The reason that this was, this was separated into two different colonies is because with the, I have to remember, what did, we, what did, we, what did you say we call it? The, the War for American Independence? I have to remember how it's referred to over here. The war for American independence is over, and there are a lot of loyalists, people who are loyal to the British crown, and when the war is over, they didn't want to stay in in the United States. So they went up to Canada, but the the territory that is Canada was very huge, and it was filled with a lot of French who didn't like the English, and the English didn't like the French. So the loyalists went over here that wasn't settled very well, and that was called, uh, at that point, Upper Canada, which is today Ontario. So that is a primarily English-speaking province. Uh, it's called Upper Canada, even though it's lower on the map because it's upper on the St. Lawrence River, which is going this way, so it's really counterintuitive. Upper Canada is actually lower on the map. It becomes much easier in a little bit when they, this, they change the names. I guess people were getting really confused, so they changed the name to Canada East and West. That was far easier to figure out on the map. In 1812, we have the War of 1812 starts between Britain and the US. This is important because this is the last time a major battle was fought on Canadian soil. And uh, the reason this is important is because we did in Canada they didn't lose any records due to uh, wars or things like that because there hasn't been any disagreements on Canadian soil in 200 and some odd years. Um, which means a lot of the records survive. Unlike those of us researching our French ancestors when we go to Normandy and there's nothing left because it got Trampled in World War II. The next important date is 1841. The two colonies of Canada East and Canada West unite into the province of Canada. And this is only Quebec and Ontario. Canada starts as just those two areas. Everything else is still a colony. Okay? In the 1850s, 1837, there was actually rebellions in Upper Canada and Lower Canada. They wanted um, independence. And 1841 was Britain's response. They said, well, let's change the government around. We'll create a little colony. We'll give you your own little government. It was an attempt to appease them. It didn't appease them. It did, but it didn't. And there's still a lot of conflict in Canada. And at this point, there is a huge movement for Canada to join the United States. Very huge. Almost successful. Came this close. And there's only one thing that stopped it from happening, which is in 1861 in the United States our Civil War started. And during the American Civil War no no attention was being paid to anything except fighting that war and getting getting it settled. And that took five years. War ran from 1861 to 1865. That gave the people in Canada who were opposed to annexing themselves to the United States time to organize and foment an, a really strong opposition. So when the American Civil War starts, finishes and they come back to Canada and say, yes, let's, let's talk about you joining us again. Now the opposition has gotten together and said, no, we don't want to do that. And they were successful in stopping that from happening. And in 1867, the Dominion of Canada was formed. And it was formed with Quebec and Ontario, and Nova Scotia and New Brunswick were joined together. And this is is the first real independence of some sort from Britain. Three years later, Manitoba joined the Dominion, and the Hudson's Bay Company signed over the territory of Rupert's Land and the Northwest Territory to. To the Dominion of Canada. Now, there's not a whole lot of people there. That's that huge area in the north of Canada. There's a whole lot of polar bears and ice, (laughs) but there's not a. It may be one of the biggest countries in the world, but all the population. Now, this is all. This is all of Canada, but all the population lives here, and here. It's all down here. All this is no man's land. The very, very, very tiny populations from the very beginning, even till today. So it's, it's all huddled all along the coasts and down along the American border. Very, very close to the border. So that's the only places you'll be looking for your people for the most part. So that's in 1870. And in 1873, British Columbia joins the Dominion. In two years later, in 1875, Prince Edward Island joins, 1898, the Yukon Territory joins. Very significant why. Why did the Yukon Territory join Canada in 1898? Because of Alaska becoming American. Uh, Even more important than Alaska. The Yukon Gold Rush. So Canada was like, you need protection. You need help. (laughs) But you may have ancestors who left England. Many, many English came, and they were heading to California. Uh, during the California Gold Rush and now you see a lot of them in the Yukon territory during the Gold Rush. They would go stay for a while and then come back. So it's a very significant year. In 1905 Alberta and Saskatchewan became part of the Dominion and in in 1931 uh, the British Parliament passes the Statute of Westminster which pretty much grants legislative independence to Canada. So it's 1831 that the government is finally pretty much separate from the UK. Uh, in 1940, it's not until 1949 that the province of Newfoundland and Labrador joins the Dominion. So until 1949, it's still a British colony. It, and in 1982, the Canada Act uh, is the final severing of connections, of, of the formal legislative connections. And it's still part of the Dominion, I mean, uh, of the Commonwealth. It's still a Commonwealth nation, but it's pretty much autonomous at this point. So all the records are going to be in Canada. There's not very much here. After 1931, there's not very much over here, it's all over there. And in 1999, the most recent territory, the territory of Nunavut was carved out of the Northwest Territories. It's got something like population 2000 or something, it's really tiny, and it's all native indigenous peoples. So, in Canada, you have an influence on the records, you have three different influences on record keeping in Canada. You have the French influence, because they were there first, and they started some of the record keeping. Okay? Then you have the British influence, which comes along when they take control of Canada and they set up the governments, and it follows for the most part the British rule. But then in the 19th century, you start having American influence. A lot of the systems and ways of doing things tend to follow the American influence, and the reason for that is the number, huge number of Americans that settled in Canada. We talked about the War of 1812. Now during the War of 1812, the Americans started it. I can say that because my people weren't there. Totally impartial. The war starts between the states and the first thing America does is try to invade Canada. Okay, and one of the first things they did was march up to Toronto and burn Toronto, which was then the capital of Canada. So your ancestors (laughs) came to America and burned Washington, D.C. in retaliation. And what happened after the War of 1812 is that Britain realized, okay, the reason the Americans were able to march all the way up into Canada and burn Toronto was because there was nothing there to stop them. It was trees and woods and beaver. So what they did was they carved up all that section along the American border and the provinces of Quebec and Ontario at first and then progressively all the way across. But starting in Quebec and Ontario, the Crown carved up all that territory and said, we'll give it to you for free if you come over here and settle. And that's where you have huge numbers of people from the UKI heading over to Canada because land was cheap. And the reason it was cheap was because Britain needed cannon fodder. They basically needed people to stand in the way if the American army was gonna invade again. And so, when you're looking for people, if if you're looking for anybody who was in Canada who goes over there in this early 19th century period, this is where you're gonna find them, is in that southern strip for the most part, that southern strip. But you also, in addition to finding British people who are coming over, you find a lot of Americans who are also like cheap land. The British government didn't care who it was. They just wanted people there. And so you have a large number of Americans who are dirt poor with no um, prospects down in the States. They headed up, and they got some of these land grants. Uh, Those land grants are found, uh, are crown land grants. Even though they're crown land grants, they're all located housed in the archives in Canada. You won't find them here. And they are well indexed. Uh, we have, there's a dual level of record keeping in Canada. Like here, here in the UK you have the General Record Office and anybody who was born anywhere uh, down here in England, you can go to the GRO and, and get the record and they're in there. That's not the case in Canada. In Canada there are basically four kinds of records that genealogists do, four major types of records that uh, they deal with that are on the federal level. And those are census records, immigration, naturalization and military records. Now, even the military records, it depends because in the early years, remember the military records, they're in the British Army. So those records are actually here at TNA. There's nothing in Canada, not until much later when Canada starts its own army. Start with immigration records. The bad news is, before 1865, there are no passenger lists at all. A couple of spotty things, but not much. Between 1865 and 1935, some passenger lists do survive. Therefore, ports in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, oh, I left out Quebec. My apologies. And Quebec and British Columbia. Now, the the port in Quebec was closed for six months a year for winter. The ships couldn't get down in the ice. Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and British Columbia, those ports pretty much stayed open. You may find people coming into, the, into Canada through either Newfoundland, which in this early period is still part of the UK, that go into Newfoundland. And if they went to Newfoundland before coming into Canada, you would probably find them coming into Nova Scotia because there, there were ferries going back and forth between Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. And that's where you'd want to look for them if they go to Newfoundland first. If they went to the U.S. first, there are no records of border crossings between the U.S. and Canada before 1895. And even after 1895, they do not cover everyone. They only cover people who cross the border by, by train or by ship. You know, it's very funny. Right? I, uh, A few years back, we had a a national genealogical conference in New England, and they wanted to come up with a theme, and they said, oh, we need to put a ship, because everybody who immigrated to New England came by ship. I said, no, they didn't. And the guy said, well, what do you mean they didn't? I said, how did your ancestors get here? I said, they they took the train. He said, from from France? I said, no, my ancestors came from Canada. They just took the train. (laughs) Yeah, not everybody came by boat, but not everybody came by boat into Canada either. Remember, they could have come to the U.S. first and taken the train up. Now, after 1895, if they take the train or they take a ship, they, they, there's a good chance, still not 100%, but there's a good chance they'll be found in the border crossing records. Those, are, however, are American records, not Canadian records. The Americans are keeping track of the border crossings. But anybody who goes by private transport does not get captured in those records. So if you've got anybody who came into the US and like, drove in a family car, or horse and buggy or whatever, there's no record of them crossing the border in either direction. My own family went back and forth three times a year to go visit relatives and family. I've only got two or three border crossing records in the entire period, and this was going on until ten years ago. And there's just no records in this early period, before 1950. They just didn't track them. Canada and the U.S. have had a very, very close relationship. And, you know, it's the longest, it was for so long, the longest unpatrolled border in the world. And it's only recently since 9-11 that they've had to clamp down on some of that, um, only to keep the bad guys out. But because of that, you know, there, there are wonderful things about that and there are not so wonderful things about that. And as far as genealogical research is concerned, one of the not so wonderful things about that is they didn't keep any records. And it's very common for people to go into one country or the other and then go to the other one. In fact, the reason the border crossing started in the 1890s was because it was much cheaper and easier for people to go from the British Isles into Canada. And so they would go to Canada, and then when they were crossing over into the US, they'd say, where are you coming from? And they'd say, oh, Canada. Oh, Canada? Come right in. But if you were coming from the UK, there were quotas. There were only so many people who were allowed to emigrate from from specific countries into the United States in this time period. So if you're coming from England, say, or Scotland, you'd be coming in, they say, where are you coming from, Scotland? Oh, I'm sorry, re- you know, we just gave the last slot to the guy in front of you. You'll have to come back next year. But if you're coming from Ca- there was never a quota between people moving from Canada into the U.S. So they go to Canada first, so that way they wouldn't be lying when they said, <laughs> where'd you come from? So you may find your ancestors who went to Canada may have spent some time in the U.S. And it's not uncommon for them to come down, spend a few years, and then go back up. They're backing and forthing across that border quite, quite a bit. So keep that in mind when you're looking for people that they might have slipped over the border a little bit. Um, they, didn't go to, they didn't go to Florida. Well, they do now. <laughs> they come in half of Florida in the wintertime. is full of license plates from Ontario and Quebec and Nova Scotia. Um, but back then, they would go into New England, New York, all that northern tier of states they come down looking for work, they might spend a few months or a year and then go back up. So you might want to keep that in mind as well. Census records. <clears throat> Before 1851, there were really only fragments, and really only for the province of Quebec. There's, very, there's not much of anything for any other province, with the exception of a few in, in early ones in Ontario, but again, just fragments. 1851 was the first um, decennial census. It was taken only, now remember at this time, Canada is just, Canada East and West, uh, Quebec and Ontario. Uh, And Nova Scotia and New Brunswick also took censuses. Um, The British government wanted some information on the population, but it was a different census with a different form and in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick it only asked for the head of household. In Quebec and Ontario it asks for everybody, everybody's listed. That was in 1851 and 1861. 1871, this is the first census after Confederation. So there is a census, but it's for, again, Quebec, Ontario, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, that's it. Everything else is still part of the UK, British colony. There are the records for later censuses 1881, 1891, 1901, 1911 is the most recent census that's been released. In 1916, a census was taken of the Prairie Provinces, which is Manitoba, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. Uh, the Canadian government wanted some information on those folks specifically, so there was a separate census that's done just for those, just for those provinces. In ni- there, in the 1921 census of Newfoundland has been released. Uh, that's because it was a British colony, it wasn't part of Canada yet. So they've already released that census. So if you did have somebody in Newfoundland at that time, you can look at them. Then we get to non-federal records in Canada. And these are vital records, probate records, land records, church records, all that stuff. That's all kept on the provincial level. So what that means is when you know that you have an ancestor or a family member who went to Canada, it's important to know where in Canada they went. You need to know which province they're in. Then you're going to have to look. And at this point, some of these records are kept on a provincial level, some of them are kept on a county level, and some of them are kept in the local level. So you need to know as specifically as possible where people were living. Now, one way you can find this is that there are, uh, in some of the provinces, directories, city directories or province directories that can help you figure out where somebody was living. That will be very important. For example, the start of civil registration for vital records is different in every single province. And uh, in Nova Scotia, for example, it starts in 1864 and goes until 1876, I think it is. But then they stopped and didn't start again until 1908. And so, but in New Brunswick, they don't start until 1881 and they kept going. So, depending on which province you're in, the records are gonna be different. You'll wanna check with the provincial government in whichever province you're looking at to figure out when vital records survive, when they were kept, and what's available to the public. Now, I'm gonna jump back a little bit because all of the provinces except for Quebec follow a, an Anglo-American tradition in terms of vital records, civil registration, Probate records, land records—the thing that you're used to. Um, Quebec, however, is very, very different. In in 1774, Ke- Parliament, here in Westminster, um, passed the Quebec Act, and it became effective six a uh, year later in 1775. Under the Quebec Act, in the province of Quebec only, or Lower Canada. Civil law was going to maintain the custom of Paris. But criminal law would be under Britain's custom. English, English rule of law. Catholicism was guaranteed. Remember in this time period Catholics weren't looked upon too kindly over here. But they were huge in Canada. In Quebec especially. So they were guaranteed that they would be able to practice their Catholic faith. They were allowed to pay their tithe to the Catholic Church instead of the Church of England. And it continued the seigneurial system of land ownership. The reason this was passed, those, those years might seem a little familiar, 1774 and five. This is the time period where British North America is in turmoil. Now we've just had in 1759, so only 15 years earlier, Britain has conquered all of the French area, territory except for the little bit out west. So they have a lot of French who've just been who and the French and the British have been locked in combat for centuries, and they've just taken over this whole area. Okay? Then you've got the people down in the, the southern colonies, Massachusetts, New England, New York, Virginia, etc. And they're getting all cranky. You know, we had our little tea party in Boston Harbor and threw the tea in the in the harbor. Very interesting note that they never teach in American history, but the man who led the meeting that ended in the Tea Party, where they were protesting the, the taxes, was the brother of the Boston tax collector. <laughs> they never talk about that, but it was his brother. Anyways, all, so all of this is happening. So Parliament's looking and they're going, OK, we have all these cranky Englishmen in the southern part of North America, and then we have all these French. Up here, who are probably not too happy with us. And they knew that they could not, they knew war was coming at this point. They didn't know when it was going to happen, but everybody was pretty sure something was going to happen. They knew that, Britain knew they couldn't fight a war on both fronts. If they tried to fight a war all through North America, they were going to lose everything, they'd lose the whole continent. So, Parliament passes this act to pacify the French Canadians, to keep them from taking up arms against them. Now, in some ways, the Quebec Act worked, and in other ways, it didn't work. It did keep the French pacified, and when the, the war for American independence starts, the Americans invaded Quebec going, saying, come on, French, let's go against them. And the French were just like, yeah, whatever, I still, get to go. I still get to go to church, I still get to pay, I don't care. So in that respect, that it worked. In the respect that it didn't work, the Quebec Act was what is referred to in America as one of, is one of the intolerable acts. It, this one act directly leads to the American Revolution a year and a half later. Everybody down there was really annoyed that the French, who had just been conquered, were given all these special rights that they themselves didn't have. And that's, this one act starts the whole thing. In terms of researching your ancestors, who go to Canada, or your family members who go to Canada, the impact is that in the province of Quebec, record keeping is nothing like it is over here. It's completely different. The first thing is that vital records are maintained by the churches. Civil registration is actually done by the churches until the 20th century in Quebec. So the church would record all births, marriages, and deaths, and they would send a copy up to the provincial government. Uh, the, the great news about that is because there's two copies in every church the copy at the church level because they didn't of course keep one for the government with just birth dates and one for them with all the liturgical dates they would say you know so and so was born this day and baptized this day and then they keep two identical copies and they would send one up to the province what that means is anybody in Quebec there was always two copies of the registers and there are only very very few complete and total losses of church records So we have a very fairly complete record of the vital records in this time period. Now the bad news is, the Catholic Church was the first group that was allowed to register, and then it was the C of E. And they didn't let any other denomination do this for quite some time. It was well into the 1820s or 30s before they let the other Protestant denominations in to register. You will often have to look, it doesn't matter what religion your ancestor was, you're going to have to look at all the Protestant churches. Uh, for records, because there may not have been, they may have been C of E, but there may not have been an Anglican church where they were living. There may have been a Methodist church or Presbyterian church. They didn't care as much, and they'd easily move back and forth. If you look in the census records, one of the questions in Canada that it asks is actually it asks you what your religion is. So if you look at a census record, that should tell you which church to start in, but you'll need to kind of be flexible and look around. If they're living in a less populous area, they may have gone to the Presbyterian church or, or what have you. The biggest area where it impacts, however, is in probate and land records. There are no registries like we're used to here in the UK. They didn't go, it wasn't run by the church, it wasn't run by the civil government. They have a system called the notarial system, and notaries in Quebec are lawyers, they practice contract law. Okay, only contract law. Criminal law is done by a different set of lawyers, but they are lawyers, and they handle any aspect of contracts, and that means agreements between people, individuals, this can be employment contracts, all probate matters are handled by notaries, okay? Notaries had no physical jurisdictions. They practiced where they lived. Wherever they lived, there might be 12 notaries, there might be one notary. Didn't matter. Um, So it's not like somebody came in and said, I have this town, you guys can't come in here now. Sometimes you have these little little teeny towns and they might have two or three notaries. You get to a large city and there are, could be dozens and dozens of them. You have French and you have notaries who are French and notaries who are English. If you are an English speaking person, do you go to the French notary or do you go to the English notary? What do you think? It it depends. And the answer is, it depends. Who are you dealing with? Are you dealing with a Frenchman? Are you dealing with an Englishman? If you have two Englishmen, they might go to an English notary. But if there's no English-speaking notary in town, they go to the French notary. They may be, you may be an English-speaking person who goes to a French notary. The French-speaking notary might write the record in English because you're an English person. However, he might just as easily write it in French if he was annoyed with you. The records may be in French, or they may be in English, and there's no rhyme or reason. And, you know, if I am in Montreal, and you're in Quebec City, and we're going to enter into a contract, well, which notary do we use? Do we use the one in Montreal? Do we only use the one in Quebec City? Do we use the one in Three Rivers, which is halfway in between? We meet in the middle. Could be any of them. That's the bad news. The really bad news is (laughs) there's no centralized index for these records. Each notary was to keep, and this system is still in effect today, so this, this isn't like an old style system. The, uh, each notary was supposed to keep two indexes, an onomastic index and a chronological index. Some notaries did, some notaries didn't. Sometimes they kept it and it doesn't survive. You, you've got to look. The kinds of records you will find in there, these are the French names because they're most often written in French. And a shot is a sale. I mean, it's a purchase of land. So remember I said a few minutes ago, the seigneurial system of land ownership was maintained in Canada up through the 1850s. And that's where a, um, a seigneur, a lord, was granted a huge swath of land, and he subgranted it to all these individuals who paid either a rent or you know, six chickens and a half a bushel of wheat and stuff like that. That was in place until the 1850s. After that, individuals are allowed to buy and sell and trade land of their own accord, they own their own pieces of land. So um, it could be organized as a sale. Um, it, uh, an accord uh, or an obligation or a contract is just, it's basically like, this, this is the general term for any kind of contract between two people. I'm gonna sell you a cow, I want you to build a house for me. Um, one really neat thing is you can, if you can find um, contracts where somebody's paying somebody to build their house and there is a very specific description of that house. It will be some you know, it will be this many feet wide, by this many feet wide. You will walk in through a central door. They will be on the first room on the left, it will be this many feet, by this many feet. It will have two doors. It will have three windows made of glass. The house will be made of wood. Huge, huge, detailed, detailed work. could go on for pages, but you get a great description of the house your ancestor lived in. Marriage contracts are very common in Quebec you have two people who are going to marry they take out a contract beforehand that states you know what is the husband going to bring to the marriage what is the wife going to bring to the marriage more common for French but still because it's the tradition of the province you will find a lot of English people who who take this up Uh, it's basically a, a prenuptial agreement it's been around and you can always tell when the prospective father of the bride didn't trust the the groom so much because there's like Pages and pages of what's going to happen if the groom doesn't follow through on the marriage. Curatel, um, this is a guardianship record, um, a guardianship slash adoption. Um, the French didn't have the stigma of adoption that a lot of the English-speaking world did, and they were very. They would say, "So and so adopts the son and daughter of so and so." It's right there in all the records. Donation interviewee is gifts of the living. Some people gave away their property while they were still alive in exchange for being taken care of for the rest of their life. So instead of a will, you might find a gift of the living, and, uh, which is really great. You know, I'll give you the family farm, and you are going to take care of me and give me this many clothes, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, An engagement is a, is a, is a um, employment contract. Um, Inventaire après is an inventory, uh, inventory after death. Um, partage d'une succession is, is the division of real estate after somebody's death. They, they divide up the property and you get this piece and you get this piece and you get this piece. Process verbal is just a testimony of some sort, an affidavit that you're giving. But they're very common in finding where people lived and, and how old they were and their ages. And so, sometimes you find their place of birth, their place of origin. A testament is just a will. Uh, you will find a lot of the uh, English speaking folks have wills. Not so much the French, very un- Tutel is another kind of cure de tale, and is just a different kind of adoption or guardianship. And a vent is a sale of property, real or personal. So whether you find it as a vent or an achat depends on who registers it. If you are the person buying it and you you drag the other guy down to the to the notary. It's filed as in a shot, but if you're, the other, if you're the person selling it and you drag the other guy in, then it's filed as a sale. So you have to look under both. It's not filed twice. It's only filed once. It just depends on who did it. Notarial records were considered the property of the notary, originally. Sons of notaries often became notaries, and they would pass on the set of records to them. The reason was, of course, they're lawyers. So, you need a copy of a contract that you've filed with somebody right, and you need another copy, you call the lawyer's office where they say, certainly we'll be happy to send it to you. That'll be 20 pounds, please. Uh, and the same thing was going on back then. So they would pass them down. Around the turn of the last century, the, the provincial government said, okay, we need you to turn all these records in because they were being stored in, in you know, barns and attics and leaky places. and stuff." So they asked that all records of deceased notaries be turned in to the provincial government. And now they're all housed at various locations throughout Quebec, the regional archive branches. So what you need to do is, and there are finding aids available online and in book form that can help you to find a notarial record for anybody who was living in Quebec. You need to figure out what town they were living in, and then look at one of these guides and figure out what notaries were practicing during that time period, and then go to the regional branch of the archives to see if the records have been microfilmed or not. Some of them have been filmed, some of them haven't. Um, many of the ones that have been filmed are now available on Family Search. So you can find them online there. They're not indexed yet, but they are browsable by location. You will find some of them. I want to go through some websites that you'll find helpful. Uh, this is the Bibliothèque Archives Nationale de Quebec. This is the Provincial Archives for Quebec. Now, officially, Canada is a bilingual country. And officially, Quebec is a bilingual province. <laughs> officially. <laughs> they speak very good French. And they speak very good, good French. And there is, you see how easy it is to find the English button on this page? I'm just saying. Uh, it's actually only on the home page. <laughs> and if you click English, about one tenth of the content of the website will show up in English. But you can find some records. And it's the library and archives. Um, if, you're look, if you want to find records of, of the notaries, etc., you want to click. There's a little section. Let me go back. Right up here, there's a link that says Pistard archives. That is for the link to the archives catalog. If you just search the regular catalog, you're, you're searching the library catalog. So that will give you all the pub, published stuff. The Pistard gives you the manuscript stuff. So Pistar, this will help you find records. You can actually search under here. It says, is this is the different kinds of records. You can actually limit to specific kinds of records. They actually are working to provide some images of some records online. So you can look, and if you, for example, know which area your ancestor lived, there may be a particular notary whose records are available online on, on the archives website. Um, NSRM is Nova Scotia Archives and Records Management. They do not have any databases online on their website. They have some historical material. One that is very interesting is historical maps of Nova Scotia. Um, They they tease you. They say, township records at the Nova Scotia archives. And then you say, oh my gosh, this is great. They have township records online. And you go and you click that little button, and it is a description of their holdings of township records in the the archives. (laughs) There's nothing online. It's just a description. We have records for this township. So it's a little bit of a tease. But they do have NovaScotiagenealogy.com. And this is where you can find any, anyone that you had in Nova Scotia. You can get vital records. They're indexed, and it's images of the original records. Only through 1910 for births, 1935 for marriages, and 1960 for deaths. Okay? Outside of that, you have to contact the provincial government. It is very, very difficult to get a copy of a birth or marriage record outside of this time period from Nova Scotia. Even the death records can be difficult unless you can prove how you're related to the person, which very often you need the death certificate to do in the first place. (laughs) PAN-B is the provincial archives of New Brunswick. Unlike Nova Scotia, they have many vital records available online, or databases rather, online, including vital records, cemetery transcriptions, directories from the province, and land records. They have indexes to the Crown land grants available online. So you can search all that. So if you had anybody in New Brunswick, they have some immigration records, but these are the local records. These are not the federal records that are at Library and Archives Canada in Ottawa. Speaking of which, the National Archives of Canada is called Library and Archives Canada. You can go to their website, it's CollectionsCanada.org, but they have a special section called the Canadian Genealogy Centre, and you can find a great amount of information here on all different kinds of records. This will explain to you where you can find specifically all these records. For example, we talked about birth, marriage, and death records in Canada are not kept on the federal level. There's no central registration office. You have to go into the different provinces, and that explains all of that different military records, immigration, et cetera, a lot of finding aids. They also have recently started putting material online. So they do have a large number of databases. Now, This is, this is just so you can get a sense of the different kinds of databases. You can't read any of these. But they have made some of the, the census records available online, some of the early passenger lists. And some of, they're just starting with the later ones now, uh, working in partnership with Ancestry. So some of this, the census records you can get on ancestry.co.uk and some of the passenger list information you can get there. They have started with some of the federal land records. There were petitions in addition to the Crown land grants. There were land petitions for Quebec and Ontario for people who served in the military who were saying, could you give me some land for my military service? So they'd be serving in the British Army, but they're petitioning the Canadian government for the, the land. So you might find the information there. AutomatedGenealogy.com is free census indexes and images of the originals. That's for 1901, 1911, the uh, special 1906 census, and 1851. FamilySearch.org. How many of you use FamilySearch? Oh, excellent. I'm so glad to hear that. They're doing such great work and making life so much easier. They have a lot of material, early vital records for some of the provinces where they exist census records, some church records, not a ton, but from all over the various provinces. So go to Family Search. Best way to do this is go to Family Search and then click on on the home page on the bottom. There's a little list of, of areas and click on Canada and you can see this, you'll bring you to this page where you can see the whole list of everything they have for Canada. And they have a lot. I'm, I hadn't been there in a while. I was very excited. And of course, I have to mention Mocavo, which, uh, which is where I'm working now. I'll put in a little plug for what? Have any of you used Mocavo yet? Few of you. Mocavo is a free search engine. It takes all the stuff that's being put on, on the internet for free all over the place, but only genealogy websites. So unlike Google, where you're doing a Google search, and how many of you have done a Google search, and you're looking for somebody who died in 1880, and the first thing you get are like three Facebook pages, and some YouTube videos, and LinkedIn? Probably not your guy, right? <laughs> so we only crawl over genealogy websites. So you're not going to get Facebook pages, or LinkedIn, or YouTube videos, et cetera. You're only going to find genealogy. So you're much more likely to find who you're looking for. Um, Now, in addition to the free service, there is also an advanced, there's a subscription for an advanced search that gives you much more targeted. You can see you can put in exact places of birth and death, exact dates. You can slide it within one to five years. You can add, in addition to the names, you can add places, so you can do more targeted searching. And also as a subscriber you will get, if you upload a GEDCOM file of your family, which you can either share with the world or keep private to yourself and nobody else ever sees it, but if you load it up to the system, it will search in the background and once a week you'll get an email saying, hey, you might want to check these links this might be your person. Um, You don't have to do anything, it just kind of Randomly picks people out of the file, so it, it's uh, for me. I'm kind of cynical about that stuff. I was like, I've been using Mocavo for a year. I've only joined them a few weeks ago, but I've been using it for more than a year, and they've been doing really good stuff. And when I when they first had this, and I signed up, I was very cynical. I'm like, Yeah, this is never going to work. And my very first one gave me new information I'd never seen before, and so did the <laughs> second one. And I was like, Okay, well, it's I know it's not going to happen every single time because that just doesn't work that way. But obviously, it's working well enough that I got at least a couple of hits that I. There is, yes, there is a mocavo.co.uk site. Unfortunately, TNA would not allow me to access it this morning. Um, there's security restrictions. They would let me go onto the American site, but not the British site. We will get that. <laughs> <laughs> now, at the moment, the UK site is only searching UK content. That's going to be f- changed shortly. We're going to add a toggle switch and stuff. But, so if you want to search uh, Canadian stuff, search mocavo.com. If you want UK stuff, mocavo.co.uk will work just fine. And sometime in the next month or so, we're going to be fixing that and adding some uh, switches in the, on the search, so you can choose search just UK, US, et cetera, et cetera. That's all I have for this morning. Thank you all. You've been a great audience. I hope you have a great day. This event was recorded live on the 28th of February 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyrighted at the National Archives. All rights reserved.